0: Um, we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Exodus the difficulty is that we left off in the book of Exodus some of you may not remember this it was probably about two years ago now Um, such has has been the nature of the last couple of years and so um, I think as we come back to the book of Exodus we're probably, it's going to feel as though we're coming to it for the first time And the additional difficulty with that is that we're jumping in at chapter 13 because we ended our previous uh, series on chapter 12. So most of us know the story of the book of Exodus. It's one of the most foundational events In the scriptures, it's foundational because all the way through the Old Testament, God's people are told to look back to the Exodus as being their primary motivation for understanding who they are and how they ought to live and why it is that they are who they are and living the way that they live. But actually as we get into the new testament we see that the new testament continues to look back to the book of exodus to describe not only what it was uh, not only to help us understand who the israelites were but to help us understand who we are in that sense we have this common ancestry this common history with between the church and the people of israel we are both people of the exodus So if you read through the New Testament and um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is saying their history is our history. They heard the gospel same as we heard the gospel. They were baptized same as we were baptized. And all the way through, these parallels are being drawn, and we're told to learn from their mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes they made which meant that they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and were not allowed to enter. Learn from it. Learn from their grumbling. Learn from their idolatry. Learn from their sexual immorality. Repent of those things. And so the book of Exodus is really, really important for us as Christians. It's not just just something that is of sort of mere historical curiosity for us. It is our story. It is the shape and the pattern of who we would be ultimately and chiefly because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And what we have seen in the book of Exodus so far has been God's mighty hand to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. The book of Genesis leaves where God's people have moved into um, Egypt the Joseph is in prime position he's looking after God's people there and they are thriving and they are growing the book of Exodus begins by telling us but the problem is now there's a new governor and God's people have grown and thrived so much that they're becoming a threat to the Egyptian people and so the new emperor of the of the um, ruler of the Egyptians decides he doesn't want he doesn't like what's going on with the Israelites and he puts them into slavery to keep them under control And in the slavery, it becomes so hard and so brutal that they cry out to the Lord for help. God's people, oppressed by slavery, crying out for help. And this is where God intervenes. He reveals himself. To Moses, first of all, through the burning bush, I am who I am. Then he sends Moses to the Israelites and he gives them he gives him miracles to perform, to persuade them that he is in fact sent by God. And as he's sent by God to the Israelites, they believe, they believe that this is a prophet sent by God. And so then God sends Moses to the, um, to the Pharaoh, to the ruler of Egypt and says to him, "Let God says, let my people go. But as you know, in the story, the Pharaoh uh, does not let them go. His heart is hardened both by himself and by the Lord, and so he refuses to let them go. But this is all part of God's plan, because God is going to, through mighty acts of power, through the power of his right hand, reveal himself not only to the Israelites, but to all of the world through what he is going to do in Egypt and through Miracle after miracle, through act of judgment after act of judgment, he reveals himself. So all the way through that early chapters of scripture, then you will know that I am the Lord. And so it comes to the point where God has almost rescued his people. The grand climax with the the last plague that comes over the land of Egypt, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And this plague is distinct from some of the other plagues in that it's not just falling over the whole land, uh, not just falling over the Egyptians, but keeping the Israelites safe. It's falling over everyone. And so the only way the Israelites could be kept safe was to take the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed in the place of the firstborn of that household and put that blood on the doorposts of their house so that when the angel of death appears, he will pass over that house. Because he's seen that a death has already taken place, there has been a sacrifice, a death in the place of the firstborn. So the angel of death would pass over; hence, the Passover meal. Now, this is where we're at in terms of the story. The Israelites are there; they've just experienced the Passover, and they've just been told to to get out of Egypt take all their things and go. But they haven't actually left yet. And so before we even get to the end of that rescue story, it's like the whole story pauses. And into that story, we're given a set of commands about how to remember what it is that the Lord has done in the Passover and is about to do in the passing through the red sea and it's like the whole story pauses for god to tell us what he's about to tell us today and that is what we're looking at chapter 12 and 13 really work together as a unit i'm not sure why i ended on chapter 12 before i'm sure i had a reason for it but we're picking up on chapter 13 which is the second half of that pause that interlude that break that says God is about to do something wonderful. He's done wonderful things. He's about to do something wonderful. But before he does that, you need to know this. And what it goes on to tell us about is two acts of commemoration, two acts of remembrance. And the first is the uh, act of remembrance of the consecration of the firstborn. So you see this in in verse um, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me with a human or animal. And later on we're told that the way that you consecrate the firstborn of every womb was by offering a sacrifice. A lamb needed to die in the place of that animal in order to redeem it, to consecrate it. And that was the first act. Why? Because through the Passover, God set apart the people of Israel for himself as his firstborn son. You go all the way back to chapter 4, Israel is the firstborn son of God. The son of God set apart for God himself. And so there's this act of commemoration in the consecration of the firstborn. And then the second thing that kind of gets merged together, both in chapter 12 and chapter 13, these two feasts, is the Passover and what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, some of these things are a bit unfamiliar to us, but basically, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast that culminated in the Passover. So the week leading up to the Passover, you would eat bread without any leaven in it, because at the time of the Exodus, God's people ate bread but they didn't have a chance to mix the yeast in and let it rise so they ate unleavened bread and so for now every year during the Feast of Unleavened Bread what they would do is they would reenact that by eating bread without yeast in it and the climax of that, the culmination of that was the Passover meal. So there are these two acts of remembrance the story is paused We haven't even got to the dramatic ending of God's rescue yet, and God presses pause and says, I want you to remember these acts of remembrance. Now, as with all of these things in the Old Testament, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining this or proving it or justifying it, but just to say this is where I'm going with this, that all of these feasts, all of these things are pictures and shadows that point to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of them. The reason we don't have a feast of unleavened bread is because that was all pointing to Christ. He is the true Israelite, the true Son of God, who consecrated himself to the Lord. He is the true Passover lamb, says uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, who gave himself for us. It is by his blood that covers us that the fear of God's wrath, or that God's wrath will pass over us at the final day of judgment. In other words, Christ, all of this is pointing to him and his fulfillment, but it's hard then not to see how it also points not only to Christ in his fulfillment in his gospel, but in his own command to his disciples to remember. What we'll come to in a little bit around the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, which is the passage I usually read from when we... Uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, together, Paul says this, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it kind of goes like this. I I once heard a sermon um, that that basically had this, on this exact same topic, but it went like this. In the past, they had the Feast of, of Harvest, and they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they had the Passover. And that now comes across into the Christian life through Christmas and Easter and harvest. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong at all with Christmas and Easter and harvest being celebrated by Christians at all. It's good and right and wise to do that. But that isn't exactly the way it goes in the Bible. It goes harvest, Passover, um, unleavened bread, or festival of booths, Passover, unleavened bread, and it comes through into the New Testament into one feast. All of those feasts what they look like in the Christian life is one feast, which is this, the Lord's Supper. Christ did not give us Christmas. He didn't give us Easter. He didn't give us harvest. He gave us the Lord's Supper. This is the fulfillment. This is the way Christians remember, the way that we commemorate. Now, with that in mind, Let's see what this passage teaches us about our act of commemoration in the Lord's Supper. I think there are three major themes that occur. The first is this, that we need to take it seriously. To take the act of commemoration, the remembrance, seriously. I remember just this November, around the time of Remembrance Day... Uh, Reading an article, I think it was in the newspaper, might have been on one of those news channels online, of someone who had written in, who was, I think, um, if not a, a war veteran or the family of a war veteran or something like that, had written in to say how concerned they were about how the Remembrance Day, remembering on the 11th of November, the great atrocities of the war and remembering those who gave their lives in it. How that was becoming less and less of a priority for the younger generations. And he's saying the danger is that we haven't even gone a century yet and yet we're already in danger of forgetting something that we vowed to remember. I remember reading that and thinking, I think that's probably true. I think it is probably diminishing in importance. Despite our efforts to keep it up, It seems to be waning and there are all kinds of reasons probably for that but this has been given to us by Christ for a reason the whole story of the exodus and God's great deliverance was paused to tell to tell God's people remember what I have done and what I am about to do and we know that we should take it seriously because first of all it's commanded um, in our own uh, passage that we read today, verse uh, chapter 13, verse 7, um, it's commanded, Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast um, in it is to be seen among you, nor shall yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. It's a very strict command. Seems to us maybe a little bit unnecessarily strict sometimes. You get the same thing repeated again in, in verse 10. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. But not only is it a command that seems fairly strongly put forward, but it is also a command that the, where the consequences for disobedience are outlined as being fairly severe. So in the passage that we, uh, just before this one, in chapter 12, verse 15, this is a fairly significant theme. So if you have a Bible open and you have a look at verse 15 in chapter 12. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. In other words, this command is not given as a kind of optional thing. It's not given as something, well, as a suggestion or something that would be wise to do and unwise not to do. No, if you do not do this exactly as I tell you to do it, then you will be cut off from the people of God. In other words, this is paused in the, in the drama of all that God is doing. Paused, remember, I want you to keep this and I want you to keep it absolutely. Why? Because I think God knows that if we don't, We will do the same thing that is happening to Remembrance Day, where it is just going to diminish and diminish and diminish until it is forgotten. So we know it's serious, and we know we should take it serious because it's commanded, and the consequences for disobedience are fairly severe, very severe, the most severe that they could be. We also know that everyone amongst the Israelites were commanded to keep this. So again, chapter 12, verse 3, 6, 16, 22, 47, all say this is for all of God's people. Across the people of Israel, everybody needs to keep this meal. But it is exclusively for God's people. So it's for every single one of God's people, but it is exclusively for God's people. So again, in chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, we see this. That unless somebody has been circumcised and brought into the people of Israel, they must not participate in it. No sojourner, no foreigner, no slave, nobody, unless they are members of the people of Israel, they cannot participate in this meal. In other words, all of this is screaming at us that God takes the commemoration of the Exodus very, very seriously but we think okay but this is the exodus this is not new testament things work very differently in the new covenant don't they god is not so strict and not so severe in the new covenant i think sometimes we we tend to think that we tend to buy into a kind of way of thinking that the god of the old testament and the god of the new testament if they are the same are in a very different mindset And actually, the God of the New Testament is chilled out quite considerably. But then when we read about what happened in the New Covenant, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? In the book of Acts, that as the church was being formed, Ananias and Sapphira thought fit to lie to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles to say that they had, in fact, given all the money. They said they had given all their money. They didn't have to, but they said they had given all their money, and in fact, they had kept some for themselves, and God struck them down. It sounds very Old Testament, doesn't it? And yet it's very much in the New Covenant. Now that isn't to say that we should expect that kind of thing to happen every week. Just because it happens once in the Bible, it means that it genuinely happened. But it might have happened to teach us a lesson that holiness is just as important in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. I don't know what else that passage is doing if it's not teaching us that. That holiness is just as important for Christians in the New Testament as it was for God's people in the Old Testament. But what also we see when we come to the Lord's Supper is that in, in that whole passage that I read from you, read to you from uh, one Corinthians eleven, is all around this controversy about the Lord's supper, supper, where some people were abusing it, and Paul says the abuse of it is very serious. You are eating and drinking judgment on yourselves, and not only that, it's the reason why some of you have fallen asleep, says Paul. In other words, the New Testament's view of the act of commemoration, in my view, is no less serious and solemn than the Old Testament act of commemoration. I think there are exact parallels running all the way through. It's commanded by us through the Lord Jesus Christ, the consequences of disobedience are being put to sleep, are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. It's for all of God's people, but it is exclusively for God's people. That is, those who've received the covenant sign to come into God's people. Whether you're an Anglican or a Baptist or a Methodist or a whatever, it doesn't matter. It's faith in the Lord Jesus and an expression of their faith in receiving baptism that matters. There are parallels here, exact parallels with the Lord's Supper. But I think we sometimes tend to think any serious devotion to a ritual like the Lord's Supper is almost Pharisaic. But that isn't what Pharisaism is Pharisaism was empty rituals Pharisaism was going through the motions with a heart far from God The motions the feast is given to us by Christ it's not empty but we can go through it with empty hearts And we have to be very careful about that But that doesn't mean we don't take it seriously We should, we do, because we want to remember, not simply God's mighty hand revealed in the Exodus, but his mighty hand revealed in Christ. Christ, the Passover lamb. Christ, our deliverer from slavery to sin and death, Christ, our redemption. So we should take it seriously. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that we should listen to it carefully. We should listen to it carefully. One of the the most curious things about, or, or most curious miracles in the New Testament for me was when the Lord Jesus comes across a man who is blind and he, unlike every other miracle that the Lord Jesus performs, where, where he just says, be healed, or stand up, or take up your mat and go, or uh, be cleansed, just by speaking he performs miracles. In this particular miracle, he decides to, to make mud with his own saliva and then rub that mud on the eyes of the blind man. Now, Why? Why didn't he just speak it directly like he'd done it on every other occasion? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) I don't know why. It's, It's curious. But for whatever reason, on that particular instance, the Lord Jesus decided to use means to perform his work, to use an instrument to do the healing that, yes, he could have done just simply by speaking, but he chose not to. I think this is a similar way to the way that we should think about the Lord's Supper and Baptism the way that the Israelites were to think about the Passover and the Feast of of Unleavened Bread and the harvest is that this is God that, yes, while he could have simply just directly through his spirit caused them to remember, God has chosen to use means to cause us to remember. So when um, Moses is describing the command to them, he constantly describes to them that this is to be something that is like a symbol. So chapter 13, verse 16, and it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now we know that the Israelites actually did end up having these phylacteries, which were little boxes strapped to their wrist and their forehead that had portions of the scriptures in them. And they would wear those as a way of keeping God's word close to them at all times. As a way of not forgetting the word of God. But I don't think that act of wearing a phylactery, I think that comes in Deuteronomy. I think here it is just simply saying that the act of commemorating a feast is like that. It's, it's kind of symbolically like the phylactery. That when you keep it, When you keep it diligently and seriously and you pay careful attention to it, it is a constant reminder to you not to forget the mighty hand of the Lord. This is what this is all about. 13 verse 14, in days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is about God's mighty hand of rescue. It's interesting, though, that when we think about God's mighty hand, you go back to chapter 7 and verse 15, and God presents the reason for his mighty hand. It is through his mighty hand that we will know who he is. So the reason we need to commemorate is not simply to know about what God has done or to know how powerful God is, but to know who God is. It's to know him to have fellowship with him, to remember him. And in particular, God's mighty hand ex- communicates to us, it teaches us, it tells us two particular truths, not or three particular truths. First of all, who God is, who God is. But secondly, that we are God's redeemed people. That's what you see twice in chapter 13, you see it in verse 8. On that day, tell your son, do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then again in verse 14, which we just read with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It is redemption. We are God's redeemed people. He has bought us back at the cost of the blood of the lamb. He has purchased us from slavery for himself. That's where that word redemption comes from. It's a marketplace term. You could buy someone back from slavery and set them free, but if you bought them, if you bought them back from slavery, they belong to you, and so the act of redemption leads to another message that is being communicated through these feasts, and that is consecration. So, verse 8 leads into verse 9. So, verse 8 Do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 9, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on the forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You see how the two are interconnected? God redeemed us out of Egypt from slavery In New Covenant terms, that was just a type and a shadow of the real deliverance, which would be from slavery not to the Egyptians, but slavery to sin and death and Satan. We are released from slavery to those things. But being brought back from slavery to those things means that we are being bought for something else. That is consecration. God's words always on our lips. In our worship, in our prayer, in all of our speech, out of the overflow of our hearts, God's word is always in our lips, or should be. Again, you get the same thing. Verse 14 leads to verse 15 and 16. In verse 14, in days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. And this is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord has brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand redemption to consecration. So when we participate in the, or when they participated in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, they were remembering three things. Who God is. That he has redeemed us. We are his redeemed people. And the Lord has done this himself by his powerful hand. And that because he has redeemed us himself by his powerful hand, we are now his. And we should live lives that are utterly given over to him. The New Testament says the exact same thing. Paul says in Galatians, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that through Christ, he is dead to the world and the world is dead to him. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says the same thing about the Christian life, that we are not our own, but we were bought at a great price with the blood of the Lord Jesus. We are God's redeemed people and we are God's consecrated people. And as we gather around the Lord's table, this is what we commemorate. Who is God? He is the God who loved us and gave his son for us that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Who are we? Well, we are his redeemed people the people who have received salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by him and him alone, not through any good works we perform, not through any acts of of, um, obedience or charity or goodness, but purely through the Lord Jesus and his obedience and his death for us, we have been redeemed. But as God's redeemed people, we are now consecrated, given over to him. As we gather around the Lord's table, we are gathering around as his covenant people, his people, not our own people, not Andre's people, not your people, his people. It's not my table, it's not your table, it's his table. And all his people are invited to gather around his table. Not invited, commanded. But the command comes to us as a gracious invitation, doesn't it? We need to take it seriously. We need to listen to it carefully. Whenever we eat and drink together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Are we listening to that message together? But finally, and thirdly, We should take it seriously, we should listen to it carefully, but we should also pass it on. We should pass it on. I imagine, I don't know about you, but if I had my children next to me, and we were about to break the neck of a donkey, that one of my children would ask the question, what is going on here, Daddy, and why are we doing this? Now can I just say to the animal lovers out there, of which we all should be to to some extent, that? The breaking of the neck of a donkey is not an exact translation of what's going on. To be honest, we have no idea what really happened. Literally, it's something like the necking of a donkey. But we don't really know what that is. And so the kind of best guess of the translators is that it was the breaking of the neck. However, if you read the commentaries on this, they don't really think that that's probable because it's quite a difficult task to break the neck of a donkey and how would they even do that? And it doesn't seem like a very sensible, practical way forward. They probably had a much more efficient way of putting an animal to death involving the neck than simply to break it. Um, So just to put that out there, I know that would be an objection in some of our minds, but nevertheless it would be expensive, wouldn't it? You would be forced to ask the question, why on earth are we doing this? This is costing us money. To redeem the firstborn of every single one of our livestock with another one of our livestock is going to cost us money. And to put to death the animal that we don't redeem seems like a colossal waste of resources. But you see, this is where God is not so much interested in practicality or efficiency or even in our scruples. He is putting a shocking and vivid reminder into his people's minds that will go on for thousands of years to teach them one simple truth unless you are redeemed you will die unless you are redeemed you will die every animal that is redeemed or dies teaches them unless you are redeemed you will die daddy why are we breaking the neck of that donkey or doing something else to its neck to involve its death because my son unless we are redeemed like the lord redeemed us we will die And for thousands of years, this is what would happen until eventually the Lord Jesus would come who would be the Lamb, the Lamb of God, says John the Baptist, who would redeem the world from sins. Here, here is the one that all of these animals have been proclaiming to us, preaching to us. Unless you are redeemed by this Lamb, you will die. So this meal is not only for us, it is for our children. So that when they see it, and they say, Daddy, why do we go through that boring part where we just sit and watch you guys have a a little bit of wine and bread? Because my son, we do it every time we gather. Because unless we are redeemed, we will die. But it seems so expensive, an expensive use of time, an expensive use of wine. By the way, I know the wine doesn't taste very nice. We're, we're upgrading the wine. It's going to cost us more money, but we're upgrading it. There we go. Okay. But why? Why spend all that money on much nicer Merlot, non-alcoholic wine? Um, because, my daughter, unless we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we will die. And we need to know it, and know it, and know it, and know it until we are overflowing with it. It is preaching to us. But not only to our children, to each other. To each other. We pass it on to each other. In the middle of the drama, before the rescue is complete... God pauses and says, here is what you will do for the rest of your lives. You will remember this. The Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, but before his return, before the rescue is complete, he pauses and he says to us, here is what you will do until I come again. You will remember. You will put all of your effort and concern into remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb and unless you are redeemed by his blood, you will die. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that it does not depend on us and our works. Thank you that we do not have to be good enough to earn eternal life from you because who could But our Father, thank you so much that you have saved us by your mighty hand through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And thank you that you have commanded us to gather and to remember and to commemorate what you have done. Father, may we listen carefully to the proclamation of Jesus' death, to his body given, to his blood given. May we take seriously understanding that this is not something to be trifled with or to be done or to be abused. May we not be those who eat and drink judgment on ourselves through our hard-heartedness. May we not be those who make this an empty ritual like the Pharisees did. May we be those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as we eat and drink, who trust in the Holy Spirit to help us to supernaturally remember as we eat and drink. And may we be those who pass on, not only to the next generation, but to all we can find, the importance of what it means that unless the Lord has redeemed us, we die. But thank you so much that we can gather as your redeemed people and that we can eat and drink knowing that we have been redeemed and that you will come again to eat and drink with us in your kingdom. And so we ask, please prepare our hearts and minds now for those of us who are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Prepare our hearts and minds that we might eat and drink by faith feeding spiritually on Christ, knowing that your spirit is attached to the eating and drinking of these things if we do so by faith. And so we ask in in Jesus' precious name, be with us now.